With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Hi, I'm here with Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank. Barbara, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive right in then. Is that okay with you? Yep, yep, yep. So so Barbara, everyone knows you right now, of course, as the Shark Tank lady. Now I know you also because in New York City, Corcoran Group is everywhere. You I think you rented me the apartment I'm currently in, actually, or at least the Corcoran Group did. I wish I had that commission now. I would spend it again. It was probably a good commission, too. You guys, real estate in New York is crazy, but that's that's for another podcast. But um, I want to try to get a little bit more of your background and correct me if I'm wrong or, or jump in on anything. So so let me see if I get this right. In school, you weren't always the best student. You were kind of a, a D student. You, you were a waitress and a guy came in, said you were going to be great at real estate uh, and basically offered you $1,000 to start your real estate business. Is this more or less accurate? Yeah, it's kind of like the modern-day version of Cinderella. You're a Cinderella. That's what I was thinking when I was on my way over here. <laughs> You're right. That's exactly what happened. And and who was this guy? Like, how, how did he recognize real estate talent in you from, from your waitressing skills? Well, the way you told the story was uh, it presented a little faster than it was. He didn't actually walk into the diner and uh, say you'd be great in real estate. That happened about eight months later once we started dating, but he did walk into the diner and he did offer me a ride home and that's a fish on the line, right? And then he also, most importantly, suggested that a smart girl like me, I remember I still glow with the words, a smart girl like me from New Jersey at the diner belonged in a city like New York. And it was like, whoa, really cool. And so he offered to pay for five nights at the Barbizon Hotel for women. He explained it was respectable. No men are allowed. Because remember, I was still a virgin, sadly, at that point. And what? Yes. What a waste. Wait, how old were you? 23. Oh, my gosh. Oh, uh, yeah. But remember, I'm ancient now. But it wasn't like I was saving it for anybody. Nobody asked me for it. But he did, eventually. And I moved to New York, and the minute I got to that Father's On Hotel on Lexington Avenue, I knew I'd never move back to New Jersey. It was done. I was like, yes, I love this place. And then eight months later, I was working as a receptionist answering phones with the Jafuni brothers, a builder in town, and he said, you be great at real estate with your personality. And that's when he gave me the lucky $1,000. What does he mean by your personality, with your personality? Like... What personality did you have that he saw? Um, it's pretty much what I always had. You know, um, I'm very outgoing. I love people. I mean, you really have to be a murderer for me not to like you. I can usually see the upside or bright side of anybody I meet. Um, I love cajoling. I love talking. I never shut up. I love socializing with people. They're my favorite subject in the world. I'm never bored with it. And so he saw that in the diner. Uh, he saw that me bubbling away of how exciting it was to answer phones all day, which wasn't that great, I guess, by other people's standards. But I loved chatting up the tenants I called, uh, sending a plumber to fix the toilet. It was like, oh, yeah, I can do that. You know? And so I think he thought my personality uh, would be good in sales. And uh, he was correct. And it wasn't, you know, a lot of people think sales is about uh, really uh, being aggressive about money. Um, I found with myself that had nothing to do with that. It's just I had fun 
chatting it up and helping people. And it almost seemed more like charity work, the business. And I also found that when I built my company to over a thousand people strong, my superstar salespeople that were making millions of dollars a year in commissions, uh, some of them were money focused. I mean, they all like money, but that's not what made them great. They were just phenomenal, hardworking salespeople who really loved what they were doing. The money kind of took care of itself. What do you, what do you think for them is the key to good sales? Like what's, what are some characteristics of a good salesperson in general? Uh, well, there's only one that uh, if I were to put all the characteristics that are uh, many, okay, uh, on two hands, there is one that would have the weight of all the others put together, which is the ability to get over failure. And I know that sounds like such a cliche. I hate to say it because everybody says, oh, persistence, persistence. There's a million names for it. But I found that the people uh, in my company that were making, say, the top people were making $4 million a year in commissions, four to four and a half maybe, and the average uh, salesperson in my company was making, I think the number was 68000 at the point I sold my business. So how do you, how do you, how do you explain that away? You know, 68000 a year to millions? I mean, what's the thing? But I did hire, train, and fire uh, salespeople my whole life. That's what I did every day of my life. And I found the real difference between uh, the superstars, the amazing ones, and everyone else is they – uh, took all the same rejections, of course, had as many hits, in fact, more because they were trying for more. Uh, but the real difference was uh, how long they took to feel sorry for themselves. And you want to know, uh, I think people always think people who feel sorry for themselves is a verbal thing like, oh, poor me, oh, poor me. It's not. It's a mental thing. And I could spot a salesman in a mental funk from a mile away. I just had an intuitive sense of nose for it. And they might look like they're in business, making the calls, sitting at the desk, looking for listings, but mentally they're out of the game. They were still recovering from that son of a gun who used them and abused them and bought from that neophyte and never even called them and blah, blah, blah. That's what's going on in their head while they're looking for listings for the new guy. And the fact of the matter is, is they're out of the business because they're feeling sorry for themselves. And I have to say, um, in the end, I had a little bit more than a thousand salespeople at the point I sold my business that I had built out over 22 years. But um, the the important thing is, is even though I only had a thousand salespeople or so, I had I had probably hired eight thousand salespeople to get those good ones, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so think of that. I probably fired. 7,000 salespeople in my career. Now, that's not a happy thing, okay? But I would say the number one reason, in fact, probably nine out of 10 reasons why somebody didn't cut it or didn't make it in the field is that feel sorry for you, that they took they took insult personally. That's what it was. It's, it's almost like they didn't conserve energy correctly in their brain. They let it leak through these uh, feeling sorry for themselves or gossip about their old clients who, who they thought screwed them and, and so on. They were living in the past. In their brain, they were living in the past and they were still recovering from an injury. You know, um, I always feel that the great salespeople have low IQs. Even my entrepreneurs uh, on Shark Tank that are my most successful, some of them I almost feel like have, if I were to, if I could do an IQ test, which of course I wouldn't do, um, I would think that they'd be average IQ type people. But what they know how to do is they're like, uh, a great, great visual has come in my head here is it's like a jack in the box. He pops up, you slam him on the head, he goes, oh, hit me again. Is that intelligent? No. But that really is the nature of that kind of a racehorse or jack-in-the-box. Pop up, hit me again. Come on, shouldn't you lay low a while? No, they don't. They keep popping up. Uh, It doesn't uh, mean uh, they don't take the injury, but it's just a quicker turnaround time, real quick turnaround time. I love that jack-in-the-box analogy, actually, because it's really true. The jack-in-the-box is pops right back up, is happy, and you want to hit it again. You got it, right? So so let's talk about your obstacles, though, because you started this business kind of in the early 70s. And in, in the 70s, New York City essentially went bankrupt. I mean, real estate couldn't have been that great. What were your obstacles during these early startup years? Well, my asset was it was uh, terrible years for New York. You know, we had tremendous problems with crime in the city. People didn't want to live here. Lots of people were moving out. A lot of the corporations moved out. And so I wouldn't say we were like a Detroit in its worst time, but we were not a happy, uh, happy picture. Okay? But um, I didn't know then, but I certainly knew looking back at it only a, a seven or eight years later when New York started coming into its own, that I had the luckiest time of any kid in the world. 
because I just happened to land in New York in its darkest hour. And what do you get in a bad market that you don't get in a, any good market is you have a, a real openness to newcomers, um, not a lot of direction on how to do it right because nobody's really got the formula. And uh, you can shove the old boy network to the left and to the right and make a space for yourself because they're laying low, especially the established companies in bad times. I learned in hindsight, of course, the established big companies in town. I mean, they seemed giant at the time. They had 30 salespeople. I thought they were like IBM or something, right? But they were giants when I had one or two people. And uh, they uh, lay low when they have a reputation. They have an attorney, which I couldn't afford. They have a, a system to speak to their team. They have a vetting process. Uh, and so as a result, the prudent thing when times are bad is to just maintain. Whereas when you're the new kid on the block, you don't know it's a bad time and you have nothing to lose and nowhere to go but up. How free are you? You could try anything. You're not going to ruin a reputation on one in the first place. And so I found that I got very lucky. I wondered sometimes if I had started in a hot, terrific market, whether I could have gotten the traction I did. But nobody was watching about me. Nobody cared. And uh, it was open game, really. Open shooting season, in a way, because New York was so lousy, you know? Do you think, in general, entrepreneurs should look for uh, kind of lousy markets that were once hot? I, I don't know how to kind of formulize what you just said, It's but it sounds interesting. Well, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say look for lousy markets, um, but I think what's, what, what is always true, and I learned uh, to recognize it and actually look forward to bad markets as sick as that was, even though it brought tremendous cash flow problems with it. But um, I think how you use that, uh, or I use it, I should say, I don't know if it's useful to someone else, is I knew when the shit hit the fan, oh, wait, are you allowed us to talk like Yeah, that? yeah, we could say everything. Say it again, you can edit it out if you want to keep So when the shit hit the fan... Um, I realized that it was game time for me. I realized I was going to have a huge advantage, and that really shored me up quite a bit. So if interest rates, for example, went to 18% and nobody was buying anything because no one could borrow money, which was certainly a case for about a year and a half in New York, um, I had one of my best successes in my life. I thought of this one-day loser sale where I priced everything together. Uh, you know, all different locations of apartments that uh, insurance company, equitable insurance couldn't unload. And I came up with a sales gimmick. And the sales gimmick, I honestly was mimicking just a puppy sale my mom had taken me to as a kid. Uh, you know, where, where I, I don't want to get off course. Who cares about the puppy sale? I stole the idea in essence. It wasn't mine. But what I did was I, I care about the puppy sale. What, what happened in the puppy sale? Well, it was stupid. Um, it was a it was a chicken farmer lady who lived next to my grandfather in southern New Jersey, and even though she didn't have chickens, I called her a chicken farmer lady. And anyway, she was selling Jack Russell puppies, so she had uh, a few Jack Russell puppies. They were always running around trying to bite us. I hate those dogs to this day. Uh, I don't offend anybody, but uh, she had a litter of Jack Russell puppies in a cardboard box, and my mother had to sit down. We had like seven kids at the time. I was old enough to like interpret what was going on. I was one of the older kids. And she had to sit down on the road and watch the people at the puppy sale. And this woman had advertised, I don't know where, but she had all fancy people from New York coming for a Jack Russell puppy. And she only had, I think she had, I can't remember, let's say five Jack Russell puppies. Uh, but she had like 12 city slickers who wanted them. And so even when that last lady who looked like a royal pain in the ass, I can even tell you what she was wearing that day, got that last puppy that even as kids, we knew that puppy was going to be dead within minutes, right? She was so happy because she got the last puppy. But that was an interesting sales lesson. When you don't have enough to go around, people want it, right? Okay. I can't tell. I wish I could tell that faster. Now back to New York, the New York version of that. So I took the 88 apartments at Equitable Insurance Homes. I did not want a public auction. I didn't want the embarrassment of that. And I priced them all alike. I just took the sale price, high floors, low floors, back apartments, front apartments, view apartments. Some didn't even have kitchens built in. They were in the midst of renovation when they ran out of money. So I priced them all alike, and I secretly gave out the list one week hence. Come early. Bring only your best customers. Bring only your family if they are really desperate for an apartment. First come, first serve. Pick the best ones. Get there early. And, of course, I had many more than 88 people in line, and I made over a million dollars within an hour. So that was yeah. like... In the worst time, the best, the best profit I ever made. Okay, but what what does it have to do with it being the worst time? Because you could also do that strategy in the best time. It would 
work. You know why? Because there's no equitable insurance company who's got a problem to begin with. Everybody was problem ridden with real estate. I see. So, so in the worst times, you have the you have the possibility of structuring the deal the way you want it. Absolutely. And in the worst times, you also have, um, you have. Well, that's it. I was going to say license to kill, but that would be another way of saying structuring the deals how you would like them. Yes, I would agree with you. Well, what about what about the obstacles that that you hit? Because again, you you mentioned how the best salespeople were able to kind of move quickly past rejection and obstacles. How did how did you do it? When did you have a chance to do that to see it in yourself? Oh, you mean in that particular sale? Or? No, no, no. In in general, in in those times, in those early stages, because I think a lot of entrepreneurs fail at this. They let failure bring them down for too long, and they don't survive it. Well, then they're not entrepreneurs, really. You know, I don't mean to be so hard on people, but they're really not entrepreneurs because the nature of an entrepreneur is identical, I find, to the nature of a great salesman. And I don't have a single entrepreneur who's successful who isn't a great salesman, by the way. I know a lot of people don't agree with me when I've said that before. Oh, no, you could be really, yeah, you could be really successful without being a salesman if you invent some a phenomenal new app that everybody's dying to have, but in the end, you got to sell the app to somebody. So if you, it's usually always the guy that you have to be the salesman, even in those instances, nine out of 10 times. So, but wait, now I got myself all tangled up in my underwear. What did you just say? So when, when did you personally have to deal with this? Oh, all through my career. I mean, you know, the nature of building a business is to get over obstacles. I mean, it would be nice if it was like the nature of business is to have great ideas. All that is like you got a ticket at the start gate, you know, um, and good ideas quickly become bad ideas. And you have to revamp and remold and, and redo your personality to a degree or hire the right people. If you don't have in your personality, you're always revamping. So in the worst times, I think this was your question, in the worst times, when did I recognize that in myself? By coming through in the worst times. But after like five or six or maybe seven, I'm just making that up. After some number of years in the business, I actually, sick as I was, got to the point, and it's still today, I see it, I smell it a mile away. When the bad times are coming, I get excited. Isn't that sick? It's like a, one of these people <laughs> that want to be whipped. I do, I could, because I feel like, whoa, some around here, this guy, something's going to give. You know, you could really shake up what you're doing when everybody's asleep at the wheel. And when people are going through rough times in any industry, I'm going to tell you something, they lay low. It's a human nature to duck for cover. But if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you ought to be looking above where their heads used to be. And around here, some great thing going to come down if only I could see it. And it really is that way. It's not like I'm one of these, oh, get my headset and believe it's true. It's not that. It's really the way it is. Because, you know, I gave you the, the puppy uh, story. Another one, uh, I mean, I could give you so many because I could actually almost track the success of my business. And all the high points would have been the phenomenal stuff you pull out, but they were always in the worst markets. And for some reason, I didn't get those opportunities in the good markets. I, I pushed and shoved to get to the top like everybody else and build my business, but I never really got a leap ahead unless it was a bad time. So I, I am just a believer. I'll give you one more example. And then if you have uh, 50 hours, I'll give you another 50, 48. Well, what about an example, Barbara, from your personal life? Like when you had to overcome an obstacle and still be, you know, a, you had to walk in and be a success. You're talking about in my childhood life? Or? No, 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 in, in business. Oh, in business. Well, you have to remember, um, my whole adult life I've been in business. I started very young. So if I, so, so I'm, again, you said personal but not business, right? This is tricky. What did you say? Well, just basically from your own life, uh, when you've had an obstacle to deal with, how did you get through it to, become, to, to, to find success through that? Yeah, I've got a good answer. You know, I was actually buying a little time there by acting like I didn't understand it so I can come up with a good answer. <laughs> Very clever. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got all the tactics, okay? Um, for me, here's my little trick that I use in everything. And it's not only personal. It's business. It's this. Because, you know, when you're building a business, your business is an extension of yourself if you're an entrepreneur. It's not, you know, it, it's like all blended in a way. Okay. So this is what I do. When I was a kid, this goes back, because we all have our shit that happens as a kid, either a bad parent, a, a acne, or whatever. My big thing was that I couldn't do well in school. Damned as I tried, so I gave up by the time I was in third grade, because I knew I was never going to do well. I just, did, I just couldn't. I couldn't read. A little simple thing like I couldn't read. That, that really affects your career in the school, for sure. 
for the rest of your life. Okay. So what that did is for me personally, it injured me deeply. I mean, I went, I got through it because I was a happy kid and my mother adored me. So at home I was a winner, but at school I was the loser. Okay. So it injured my uh, sense of security in the outside world. I was great if I knew people, friendly, happy, da, 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 you know, everybody liked to be with me, but put me in an environment where I'm supposed to have knowledge and I panic. And that stayed with me my whole life. My whole life, I'm panicked when I'm called on. I'm panicked still to this day on Shark Tank, wondering if I'll get my words in, wondering if I could speak out, if I'll be heard. I'm panicked every day on that set. Isn't that sad at this point in my life? I haven't gotten over it. But that's what injury does to kids. You know, maybe if I went to shrink, I would have gotten over it. But here's my own formula for it. So I set into that panic. I set it in in, in any situation, uh, even like, I, this sounds ridiculous. I had a, a, a dinner uh, with five friends who I've known for 12 years. I was panicked going out because I wasn't sure what to wear. How stupid is that? Because these girls are really fashionable and I'm, I'm not. So I switched my clothes. I'm like, I can't believe I should be ashamed of myself. I even give a crap. Okay, but there I was panicked. Okay. But when I'm in any situation and I'm doubting myself because it, it kicks in and I get this ugly little thing in my head, especially in a knowledge situation, like, why'd you come here? The first day on the set of Shark Tank, what are you doing here? They're going to fire you. They're going to fire you. You, don't, you can't even speak up. You can't even be hurt. Those guys are so fast. Da, 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 da. All this stuff. I shouldn't have come here. I really shouldn't put myself, blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I'm telling myself why it was a mistake to come and why it's okay to fail, basically, is what my tape was doing. But at least by the time I hit Shark Tank, I built a business. I had lived life, and I already had a rock-solid tape in my head. And the tape kind of kicks in every time. Oh, yeah? It's like, it's like a sense of falling down the rabbit hole, and then all of a sudden, you grab onto the crust, you know? And then my tape goes, oh, yeah? Well, you just watch me. You just like, you're not any smarter than me. I can be just as smart as you. You might think you're the da 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 And I start re rewinding my tape. And I won't even tell you where I land because in the end I use curse words that whoever I'm pissed at. And then boom, I'm in my feet. I got over it. And so uh, for me with business, like I remember the first day I was going up to meet Donald Trump because I purposely got myself in trouble telling he was low on the list of the top 10 condos in New York, because I did my research, I did it again and again and again, I was so sure of my numbers, and then I sent it to him and I said, I thought you might want to see this Mr. Trump before I release it to the press, and then he had me in his office that next day, tirading in his room, and put me in the mini me chairs, and he's in the big chair, and I'm scared to death, and what do you think the tape was going on in my head? Oh my God, I should have never gone here, and I have never published my report, I should have never sent it to the room, and then, lucky for me, I just got that other tape going on. Oh, yeah? You're no better than me. How dare you sit me in this? I didn't say it, but in my head, you know, I got angry. And I was able to come up with a solution. He became my best advocate for the next 15 years of my business. Wait, so what What did you say to him? He's. I'm sure he was, like, yelling at you. What, what did you say right then? He was telling me my numbers were wrong, that I had, had miscalculated the numbers on the sale prices, and I had not. Believe me, with being a bad student, I have learned to over-prepare on everything. The numbers I knew were right, okay? But I was counting the numbers on a price per room. And in those days, nobody talked about real estate in New York on a price per foot. Today is common. Everybody says, what does it sell for per foot? Nobody ever asked that question. They would ask end price. How much is it? Okay. So at that time, it was a how much is it kind of a world. But I had calculated on a price per room showing that his rooms, okay, were selling very low compared to his competitors. And that's why he was really angry. But once I figured out on a price per foot, his value went up. And he got one, two, and three, the top three sales in Manhattan, which is where he wanted to be. I was honest. My numbers were right. It just had to be looked at differently. And he became uh, really a, a great business friend uh, of, my, of myself and my company for many, many years as a result, as a result of that. I know, but again, I, I don't feel like I'm not saying it right so much to you today. But it was that tape in my head that kicked in that enabled me to think of a solution, basically, where I would have just been crying in my own tears. What, you know? what about a time when you were worried? Were you ever worried your own business was in jeopardy? Of course. Yeah, you can't be asking that question. Well, t tell me of a time and how you got through it. Okay. Uh, like, I remember the year I had my very first profit. I don't know what year it was, but I had a $77,000 and change profit. And I remember thinking, oh, I'll make seven my lucky number. Two sevens, first profit. I'm thinking about that. And then, because I always had lots of ideas I want to do. And then I, the idea I had 
was uh, to put all of our apartment listings on videotape. This is, of course, before the advent of the internet. And I announced to my whole sales staff, remember, I took my $77,000 behind my 10% partner's back who controlled money. I snuck it by her and I blew it on my homes on tape, homes on tape, <laughs> H-O-T, hot. Are we cool? And I announced at our sales meeting, and from now on, your customers don't have to look at apartments. Just hand them the tape. We're going to do every one of your listings. We're going to get your makeup done. We're going to put your face and phone number on the tape. Oh, great, great, great. Everybody thought I was a genius, or they pretended I was. I did that, lost the $77,000 because no one handed out the tape because I overlooked one important people detail. The salespeople didn't want to hand out the tapes. They were made. They were great. They look great on the tapes, but they're afraid that their customer might call another salesperson who was also on the tape, who looked prettier or nicer than them or something. So I overlooked that Achilles heel, and my idea was ridiculous, okay? But as luck would have it, I was married and still am married to Bill Higgins, who is a weekend Navy warrior for the U.S. Navy, Navy captain, and he had been in Korea playing war games on a computer and he did it once a year and he came home and he was all excited telling about the war games, blowing up the South Koreans, oh boom boom, and he was so excited, I'm like how could you get, I was almost annoyed with him, how could you get so excited, you've done this every year, I've heard this for six years, and he said no it's different, we did it on this new government thing called the internet and it was in real time and you could actually see it, and so of course that next way, day I took my loser tapes, threw them on the internet, named it Corcoran.com, and we had two sales out of London within one week. Go figure. Imagine, boom, boom. It was like catching fish. It was like, what? All right? Sight on scene. People in London buying two of our one-bedroom apartments that were, and by the way, one was already sold. They were already old tapes. We already sold a lot of stuff. But we invented the internet by accident. We didn't invent it. We found it by accident. But of course, I registered all of my competitor URLs to the the following week, every one of them I registered, because you're allowed to do it in those days, it wasn't illegal, and they had to call me and ask me for it back, so at least I always had a heads up as to when uh, when they woke up. But here's an interesting thing, back to what I said earlier about uh, the little guy having an advantage in bad times, and the little guys are always more create creative. That was an interesting Harvard MBA study, if I had been smart enough to publish it at some Harvard guy to endorse it. The, out of all the companies that I registered, and I registered 17 companies, the biggest companies called last, asking for their URL back. The smaller companies called earliest. And so I say again, uh, big companies are asleep at the wheel generally, and the little companies lean, lean, and can really do circles around them. And I just happen to get the advantage of three whole years on the internet to horse around before anybody else in the city was on it. Do you know what an advantage that was and how it pushed my company ahead, right? Sure, sure. I mean, in the early parts of the web, I was working at HBO, and they didn't own HBO.com. This this small medical supplies company owned HBO.com, and HBO had to pay this huge number to buy their URL back. Wow. And that happened in a few short years. You know, that everything changed so quickly then. Yeah. So, so look, you originally got your degree in education. You switched to entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, what would you say now, given that the educational system is, you know, 200 years old and there's so many problems with it, how do you think we can go about educating entrepreneurs better and ed educating our kids to have a more entrepreneurial way of thinking? Well, I think uh, what's wrong uh, in an overall sense with uh, teaching entrepreneurship or failing to teach it um, is that we, we are, as a system, and I'm not knocking it, it's not like I've got a, um, you know, it's not like I'm going to start a new school system or anything, but I feel like the missing uh, piece clearly is the doing, not the observing. In other words, um, it's amazing to me, for example, on Shark Tank, when people come in with all the lingo, the cool stuff, they come out of the best business schools in the nation. I never buy those businesses. Okay, I just don't buy them. I want somebody who's hungry, mean, and insecure, because that's been my track record with the businesses I've invested in. The ones that have done well are hungry, uh, not privileged, um, insecure, having something to prove, kind of like more like my own style, right? But if you were to teach entrepreneurship successfully, even in the grade schools, starting your own business in the grade schools, um, it's not about having a contest, which is very common now, Shark Tank contest. My kid pitched his idea, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. That's just, again, the starting gate to have the idea. Right? That's the easy part. But I think 
throwing people into doing it is what's needed, especially in the business schools. If not by the business schools, most of your teaching isn't in entrepreneur companies as you're playing a role, not to just observe, but you're playing a role there. You got a job there. You're doing anything. That's how you get your A, you know? So I think the difference is people think that you can learn entrepreneurship by watching, okay, and learning and, and digesting, assessing other businesses. I honestly don't think it teaches you crap. I think the only way you learn about entrepreneurship is for somebody to let you drop on your head and then see what you do with it. That's how you learn to be an entrepreneur. And you can't do that in a classroom. You can't do that in a book. And you can't do that by listening to the smartest lecturer. I participate in a class at Columbia uh, each semester at one of their uh, entrepreneur programs. Well, they are, I don't think they even have an entrepreneur program. It's an MBA program. And this uh, teacher is smart enough, an entrepreneur himself, to bring in one entrepreneur after another, after another, after another. That's the whole co course curriculum. You're hearing from entrepreneurs and the kids in the class get to ask questions after your half hour lecture. That's getting close, but it's not close enough. Because what's missing there, I hear, I see it, because I'm in front of the class, honestly answering things, telling them what I can possibly share with them, what they want to know. But in the end, I can hear from the questions, even uh, they're listening uh, from a tone of uh, learning from me, but they're not in my shoes, nor are they asking the questions like, well, if I was there, I would blah, blah, blah. I never hear that. It's like, well, what were you thinking? It's like a professorship more than an entrepreneurship. And so I think that is the missing key. I think kids have to be thrown into the workplace with winning or failing entrepreneurs, not as cool things for their resume, which they all want today, you know, the right companies so they get the right job. No, no, no. It's about like working a food truck and hustling people over to get you a hot dog. Or whatever. You know, that's the real deal. And that's lacking in the school system. Wait, the, one other thing I'll just whine on about for one moment. I have a 10-year-old, Kate, and my 21-year-old son, who's just graduating from Columbia. That's how I got in that, that particular teaching thing. But um, what I find is I have the hardest time on a play date with my Kate and any of her friends to, first of all, get them off the goddamn phone, you know, the, the YouTubes, okay? But they love YouTube so much, most of all their education and knowledge, when I say to Kate, how did you know that? She says, oh, I saw it on YouTube. Kids love learning by watching, and yet the school systems are still using the teacher in front of the class. I don't get it. Yeah, that's real interesting. I mean, there are educational companies that teach via video, but I guess they haven't made their way into the school system yet. No, the last place to change is the education system, sadly. So do you think, like right now, a lot of people I know want to be entrepreneurs so they could quit their job. And they think that the, I, I feel society in general glorifies the entrepreneur and, and encourages everybody to just quit their job and start a company and make millions. And I think that also is, is the wrong way to go. I think these people are often setting themselves up for, for failure and disappointment. Well, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, so far as quitting you, here's the, here's the thing I have found, uh, Based on my experience, and I think this would be helpful, actually. I hadn't really thought about it until you just asked about the quit thing. <clears throat> I don't have a single entrepreneur that is succeeding very well uh, who quit their job. Interesting. Isn't that odd? Until they had a business. You know, until they had a business up and running that took over their time. And now let me see. Is that really true? That's true of so, every so, single one of my entrepreneurs. So they started like as a side business, for instance. Yes. Okay. Or they happen to maybe not even start as a side business, but as a side anything, realized in the midst of working somewhere else that, whoa, here's something that's missing. So I, it's very hard. Like, uh, for example, I was with a young woman, um, a good friend of, uh, of my family, and she wanted an hour of my time because she's graduating and she didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. And she's really worried because all of her friends either have a promise of employment or whatever. They really know what they want to do. And she had a list of like seven or eight different things. But she said, what I really want to do and I feel like such a failure about is I really want to be in business for myself. But I have been thinking about it for six years and I can't think of what I want it to be. And she was really frustrated by this. So as a losing choice, she was thinking of going to work in these five or six different fields, right? And I thought, boy, isn't that kind of typical what a lot of people think? You think of the idea, and then you go out and you do it. But with all my entrepreneurs, they stumble on the idea in the activity of doing a regular thing. 
And when, when do you know, like for any of these people, they, they might pursue an idea for one month, two months, a year, two years. At some point, they start smoking the crack. Hey, this might be the best idea ever. At what point do they know whether the idea is good or bad? And when should they give up? Let me tell you that when they decide whether it's good or bad is totally dependent on nothing having to do with factor business. It's based on how secure they are. It takes a very secure person to say, boy, am I a loser? This thing ain't going anywhere and stop it. Okay. Now, if you, if that same person does that too quick, you call them a loser because they don't have the courage to see it through. But there is a common sense piece to all business, like a street smart common sense. And everybody knows when things aren't going well. They might not identify it when they know it's starting to take off, but they know when it's not going well and sizing it up and whether you want to leave it or not. But it takes courage to say, I quit. A lot of people, in fact, I would say there are far more people that will go down with the ship and drag their family down, the people who gave them some money down with them, long after they should have really switched gears and done something else. And you want to know they're always the people who shouldn't be entrepreneurs in the first place. Because people who are, I'll finish just one other thought I had, the people that I've worked with who really uh, have an idea and it's not going well and are entrepreneurs, they, they twist it, turn it, and somehow make it. They make it through and they make it a good thing. But if you don't have that capacity to like reinvent your thing and twist and turn it, it's because you don't have the nose of entrepreneurship to know which way you should be going. You shouldn't be an entrepreneur in the first place. Part of that, though, is experience of knowing when something is not going well, as opposed to just having common sense. Like, how do you cultivate that common sense? You know, I would have to differ with you on that. I don't believe that. So I think it's an innate intelligence. I really do. I could, for example, and I, I hate to talk about me. It sounds so braggadoso. No, I want you to talk about you. But I know myself better than I know anybody else, right? Um, I could smell trouble a mile away instinctively. I remember I had um, probably three or four offices. I was down in Washington, D.C. I offered this as an example because it's crystal clear, I think, uh, at a real estate conference. And I'm sitting in the middle of a conference. Everybody's raving about how good the market is. People from all over the states. I knew these people for a number of years. They, they were truthful about it. And I'm sitting there and I have a sick feeling in my stomach and I can't explain it why. Okay. But at the time I had just opened a year earlier, a new division of on-site salespeople where I uh, populated seven or eight development sites in town. It was a new part of my business, very lucrative. I supplied the salespeople, I paid the salespeople, and when they sold the condominiums, I got my juicy 4 or 5% commission on a gigantic job. By anyone's standard, it was everybody wanted that piece of the business. I muscled my way and actually got something going. But I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., I'm sick in my stomach, and, and I can't explain why. And it crystal clear to me, as like God sent a light bulb down and slammed, bursted in my eyes, I realized I had to go back to New York and dump every one of those jobs as quick as I could because the crap was going to hit the fan. And with me paying for all that payroll, it was going to drag my regular brokerage down to the grave with it. And I went back to New York, met with every developer within two days, suggested they take my sales for you, put them on your payroll. I don't want to leave you high and dry. You take them. You take them. But I got out of every one of those jobs. And do you know, the real estate recession happened like within a month and a half. Boom. And if I hadn't dumped that crap, because I was leveraged in my brokerage company. I was leveraged there. I would have never survived that real estate recession. I would have been out of business with another 10, 12 companies that were out of business within the year. You know? so, so how do you explain it? I'm not a fortune teller, but I think, I think there's a street smart, I'm not trying to uh, sound like a uh, like weirdo on you or anything, but there's a street smart, common sense, gut kind of a thing of practicality that is intrinsic to an entrepreneur if they're going to succeed. You don't get people succeeding who have heads in the sky in entrepreneurship. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, I guess I keep saying street smarts, but that's the best way I could describe it. And it comes with a, with a, a bag of, of innate tricks, not tricks, but innate knowledge that you sense. And if you're smart enough, you trust it. But, you know, uh, back to the education system, if I could sidewind for a minute. Uh, the education system teaches you to use your logic to assess but in entrepreneurship, it's exactly opposite. I've done stuff that makes absolutely no sense. When my company was big, my, my board says, well, blah, 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 and they were right. All their logic was right, but I went and did it anyway because something my gut says, no, 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 I'm going to do it. What the hell? I might as well try it. And they were always wrong, and I was always right. 
because that's an entrepreneur gene. It's, it's an innate sense of when to go, when to lay low, when the trouble's coming, when you should hire somebody even though you don't have the money, you don't even know what position, but there's something about that person you find irresistible and you bring them in, you worry about it later. All that stuff is so much out of a gut kind of a, a thing, uh, so not out of the head. And lucky for me, I suck at the head thinking because I would have done an A once in a while in school or maybe even a C maybe once in a while, but I couldn't pull it out. But on the street, I was the best hopscotch person. I knew which kids liked who. I knew how I could motivate this. I was like an entrepreneur little kid, and I think kids are that way, you know? I, I just think, I think it's innate, that's all. Well, so I differ with you. Finally, on one lousy point, and I don't <laughs> What your point was, that's how much I differ with you. Well, well, going along with that, on your on your website, you kind of give some guidelines about how people could tell if they're an entrepreneur or not. And, you know, you list things like you, you go on, you go into things like vision, resilience and so on. Maybe talk about what are some of the critical factors? I mean, you've talked about some of them already, but how can I measure whether I'm a good or I could be a good entrepreneur or not? Um, I'll tell you, uh, well, those are the traits uh, on that website test, and they really work, and you're silly not to take it, and I don't want to act like I'm an Einstein on entrepreneur tests, but I worked on that test for a year and a half, and once I thought I nailed it, I tested it against not only my fellow sharks, who you know, no one can say they're not natural born or very successful entrepreneurs, right? Um, and I didn't come out with the test till I had tested it. So I feel like it's totally rock solid. I even tested it against um, the Lucky Sperm Club here in New York. I knew many uh, men who inherited the businesses from their dads. Their dads were amazing. And then they, um, oh really? Okay, thanks. So the dads were amazing. Uh, but the sons are like nursing the business along. I tested against them. They miserably failed. I wish their dads were alive to test it against them. I tested against my successful entrepreneurs from Shark Tank that are clearly successful. And I tested it against those that took my money and went out of business where they might think they're in business, but I know they're out of business. Okay, So it, it works. But to your question, which is what? I just want to tell you that's the best way to test all those traits. It's not a lot, but they're... I worked so hard to make sure they were correct. You know? what, what are some of the traits? Uh, you have to tell me. I don't remember now. You just rattled them off. Okay. Vision, resilience, people smarts, persistence, resourcefulness. Okay. Well, um, people smarts is essential because if you want to be a one-man shop, uh, you can do that. You know, you could, you could have a great uh, newspaper stand on the corner and sell newspapers. But the minute you want to build a business, you need people. And if you need people, you uh, damn well better uh, size them up, put them in the right jobs, motivate them, uh, punish them, um, raise them, initiate, whatever. You better know how to manage them and bring out the best in them and put them in the right spots. So, say, so give me the ones and I'll give you the best description or example, if you could say. Okay, so that was people smarts. Give me the next one. Resourcefulness. Oh, resourcefulness. I'll give you a perfect example. Jim, uh, Jim Salas and, and Sabin Lomez. I don't know if you've seen them on uh, Shark Tank. Uh, but they're the cousins' main lobster. Phenomenally successful business. Both phenomenal entrepreneurs. Equal, equally strong with different talents. I mean, it's my like dream team, really, as a partner. Okay, but I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, we pitched an update, which is essential in a Shark Tank. Uh, an update uh, where you get to showcase your great entrepreneurs and what they're doing. So we came up with our storyline, which is the governor of Maine's given an award for creating new jobs, and then blah, blah, blah. But we get a last-minute call from the producer in Hollywood sending their team out, and he says, you know what? He says, we're going to... Um going to go to the factory and film the 50 people in the new jobs. Well, we didn't honestly quite have 50 people. We, you know, exaggerate a little. So we got a bunch of their friends along with their staff of people. And I said, quickly, before they get there in two days, get white chef hats. Make sure you use the red color of your logo and put big as you can fit on the brim of the hat. Cousins. So that every shot they see, we get the branding in there. So everybody watching at home is going to see cousins, cousins, cousins in every shot. Because otherwise it's a nice story for Shark Tank. But what is it going to do for their business? So they pull that out of their butt somehow. They're all sitting there with the hats. I got there an hour early. They were floppy hats. So I'm blowing up garbage bags and knotting them to make the hats puffy, to make it look good. Finally, we get everybody perfectly poised for the camera, guys. The producer walks in. The first thing he says to Sabin, one of the partners, he says, get rid of the hats. They're too much. And he just turns around, cool as could be. He said, I'd like to, sir, but it's our company policy. We never let our chefs take off their hats. 
and we got those hats in. And you want to know, they really did make a much better visual for the show, so it was even good for them, but everybody knew their brand, you know? And so what was the word you said? Street smart, so you just used Resourcefulness. The other word. Resourceful. That was resourceful. Right. Think it fast on his feet. Boom, boom. He had the answer. That was key, right? And resourceful getting the hats. How did he get them in two days? Embroidered. I don't know. Okay. So, and I was fast on my feet when they were floppy and covering the cousin's name. Do you got any garbage bags? Blowing them up? Not even getting them in everybody's head, you know? So that's resourceful. That's what an entrepreneur does. Give me another name, if a word, if that's what you want. You're now my dance teacher here. <laughs> okay, vision. Vision. Ah, here's an interesting one. Very hard to size up in yourself, okay? Vision is not, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not putting a business plan on paper where you can project sales and analyze and see where you're going to go and what the key people are. That should, it sounds like a cool theory. No. Vision is daydreaming and seeing yourself in a role and kind of seeing what your business is going to become, visualizing it. I don't know any entrepreneurs who don't visualize. Interestingly enough, that was like a surprise thing I discovered in the, in the tremendous interviewing we did. Visualizing where you're going to go. What did we learn in the school system? Do a business plan. Forget it. Business plan is good for about six minutes until you hit the first obstacle, right? Okay, so, give me another one unless you're done. Well, I, I actually want to ask, what's your worst Shark Tank experience? Well, I won't tell you about the worst because I talked about it once and he sued me for $3 million. So really? Me, yeah, definitely. So didn't win, but it cost me a lot of legal fees. Um, the worst. What's, What's your second worst? Well. Uh, Let, let's get it. Let's cost you another $3 million, or hopefully not. No, no. What you should be asking is what's a worst that's not litigious? <laughs> okay. What's the worst that's not litigious? I will ask that. Believe it or not, I already eliminated the next three because now I realize people don't like to be embarrassed. That's the truth. And they sue to get even. Okay, so let me think. Hey, I could tell you, wait, wait can I, I'm, I'm actually thinking, can I tell you the words? Isn't it terrible? I'm never gun shy about talking about anything, but I'm learning now a new trait in my life. Be careful of lawsuits, okay? Uh, okay. I'm trying to think of how I could relate a worst without disclosing who they are. Yeah, be like abstract about it. Like what's a kind of something that you missed in these traits? Um, okay. Um, hmm. Okay, wait. Believe it or not, I'm still racing through the losers. I just say, okay. Um, is this being recorded? This is being recorded, but that's okay. We could, we could edit stuff. Okay, uh, it's all right. I just want to ask my... my Mike, who works with me, Mike Stevens on all my Shark Tank businesses, he just gave me the, the you know, the slash across the throat, shaking his head. No, don't go there. Okay. He's your lawyer. No, he, he'd make a phenomenal lawyer, actually. He's very cautious, which is good because I'm not. Okay. But he's lived through that lawsuit with me, so he knows. Um, let me think a minute. i got to give you some. Okay, here we go. I can disclose something where I won't be sued, and at least it's worthy uh, to spend the words on it. Okay. I invested in a new invention, a children's invention, and I'll keep that vague. Don't go there either. Oh, yeah. come on, Mike. Let her, let her go there. Okay. Here's the thing. I invested in a new invention for dogs. Yeah, nobody would know it from that. Okay. Yeah, he's happy. Okay. I invested in a new invention for dogs. Okay. And it was supposed to sell. It was really very clever and ingenious. I thought every dog owner was going to want it for sure. And how many dog owners... This is so far from the truth, but you're asking for it, so I'm giving you the baloney here, okay? So every dog owner in the world is going to want this thing, and I only made a small investment, $50,000. But then by the time it was really invented, because it was only a prototype, the $50,000 was spent already on the, um, the mold, okay? Now we had to produce it in the States or in China. So I had to go in for another $80,000 to pay for the advance because nobody trusted a small business. Then there was something wrong with the voice on it. And so we had to redo it. Then they wouldn't take the money back. Then we lost the next deposit. By the time it was through, I lost $350,000 in probably a year and a half. But here's the insult to injury. The young man who owned this particular dog invention was always near tears on the phone, blaming everybody for everything. And that was my first introduction to how to be a shark on Shark Tank. The minute somebody's crying, their own version of it, get out of the deal, drop the money and run. You lost the money, you're gonna lose more if you stay with the deal.
All right. So I would say that that $350,000 loss is probably my fourth worst because I can't talk about the top three, but that's all I could give you. There you have it. But I think don't cry is valuable advice, and it's similar to um, what you mentioned earlier about the salesman for your real estate firm living in the past, you know, and blaming others. Absolutely. And, you know, if you don't take control, if you're not going to be responsible for your own stuff, you're never going to succeed at anything, whether it be business, marriage, friendship. You got to be responsible for your stuff, right? I'm writing that down. That's a great quote. So, Barbara Corcoran, thanks so much for appearing on my show. Uh, you know, you do- I didn't appear. I talked. Well, you talk. Thanks so much for talking on my show. You, you do a, a great job here. You do a great job on Shark Tank. I'm always impressed by you. And and thanks for these great lessons about entrepreneurship you shared with all of us. You are welcome. You have a great voice. You're in the right field. You sound good. I hope you look good. Oh, my God. Barbara, you're the first person to ever say that. Most people write me and say, I hate your voice, but I still listen to your podcast. No, your voice is, let's be real, it's a little nasally. I mean, we've got to acknowledge that. But it's a great voice. Sounds real to me. Thank you very much. Well, thanks again, Barbara. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.